so my name's uh, Dr. Nick Green, and I'm the Director of Studies in the Chemistry Department. And uh, that means that basically uh, I'm responsible for um, everything starting from uh, basically outreach to schools, through the admissions process, um, through uh, the structure of the degree course. Uh, I'm chairman of all the examination boards, uh, and I'm also in charge of uh, graduate students as well. Uh, so uh, today I've got my hat on about admissions, but I'm going to tell you uh, three things in this talk. I'm going to tell you something about chemistry, because chemistry really, at university level, is slightly different and a much broader subject than chemistry at school level. And I'm going to give you some uh, examples of chemistry, chemistry that's going on in Oxford, and um, why it's interesting, why it's important. Uh, you might not recognize some of it as chemistry, because I, as I say, it's, it's a, a broader subject than it is at A-level. Then I'm going to give you something about the undergraduate course, and I'm going to say something about how the Oxford course differs from other courses in the UK. And there are a number <coughs> of features which are, which are quite different from other courses. Uh, and uh, I spent 15 years teaching in the University of London uh, and only came back to Oxford a couple of years ago, so I know how other courses work, and so I will be able to tell you something about uh, what are really quite unique features in Oxford. And then I'm going to tell you what you all want to know about, which is uh, the admissions process and how to get in and how we select our students. Well, this is what um, most people uh, think of chemistry. Uh, here's the periodic table. There's a hundred and something odd elements. You need to learn all about them. Okay. Write them all down for me now, please. Anybody spot the mistake? I just wondered if anybody had a photographic memory or anything like that. Sometimes they do. Well, if you look carefully, it's probably too small, actually. You'll see that the atomic weight of palladium is wrong. <laughs> Now, well, fortunately, chemistry isn't about that. We don't expect our students to memorize the atomic weights of all the elements, although by the end of the course, they will be able to write down this periodic table from memory, and they will know an awful lot about the different elements in it. But chemistry is a much wider subject than that. Chemistry is about understanding the world from the point of view of the molecule. Right? Physics is a broader subject. In physics, you have to understand the world from the point of view of the subatomic particle, or the Higgs boson, or the mini black hole that they just created this morning in, or maybe not, in uh, CERN. Uh, and you have to understand the universe from the point of view of the universe. But in chemistry, we're really interested in how things work from the point of view of atoms and molecules. So the molecular scale is key. And on this slide, that, um, it just shows you that we really are now at a stage where we can image and manipulate individual molecules. Right? The first picture on the slide here, which is this one here, is an image of molecules. These are molecules imaged by what's called an atomic force microscope, which can image things at the molecular level underwater. Right? When I was a student, many decades ago, Something called scanning tunneling microscopy had just been invented. You're just starting to be able to see atomic images in ultra-high vacuum. <coughs> this is imaging molecules underwater. It's absolutely unbelievable. The next 
picture on here is shows you that you can manipulate molecules. This is somebody who has written in copper atoms on a surface the word chic. And that can be useful. This picture here is a bunch of proteins which are joined together along a nanotube. And I'll say something about why that sort of thing might be done in a moment. Here's another example of how it's useful, this bottom picture here. This is um, what's called single molecule fluorescence. These blobs are basically light, which has been given out by a single protein molecule. This protein molecule has two conformations. In one conformation, it's working, and in that conformation, it can fluoresce. In the other conformation, it's not working, and it's not fluorescing. And you can see the protein molecule switching on in the time series. From one to two, it's on. In three and four, it's off. Right? You can see the protein changing its conformation in real time by switching on and off this single molecule fluorescence. So really, chemistry is about studying, understanding the world on the basis of what single molecules are doing. And we have got to the stage now where we can manipulate and understand and image single molecules. Here's another place where it can be useful. In this first picture, the two blocks of gold joined together by a protein molecule. That protein molecule conducts electricity between one block and the other. Right, this is the sort of prototype of molecular electronics. I'll say more about that in a moment. The other pictures are pictures of virus molecules which have been tagged with a, something which fluoresces. So this, again, is single molecule fluorescence. And the single molecule fluorescence is being used in medicine to follow the virus molecules as they attack this cell. And you can see they're attacking this cell. They're getting to the cell wall. And one of them has managed to get through. And in this image, they've got through the cell wall. And this is how the virus molecules move in quite a different way once they get inside the cell nucleus. Okay. Chemistry is incredibly broad, and it covers a very wide range of things. It covers everything. You've seen examples from sort of medicine and biology at one end, but it covers everything from medicine and biology at one end to physics and maths at the other end. And to be a good chemist, to get a chemistry degree, you're going to have to study all of that, and you're going to get examined on all of that. Obviously, in the end, you can specialize in the bit that you like, <laughs> but a good chemist really has to have a very broad ed scientific education and understand how chemistry works, how chemistry fits into biology, how chemistry fits into physics, and how maths is used to describe chemistry. So uh, just a few, few examples here. This is a sort of classical chemical example. This middle picture here is a picture of an antibiotic. And the, uh, it's, the antibiotic is, uh, um, is binding into the active site of an enzyme which is blocking and uh, this is the, the mechanism by which this antibiotic works. This first picture is, oops, a daisy. This first picture is um, also uh, uh, a sort of classical chemical picture. These you will all recognize as chili peppers. One of our research groups has developed an electrochemical technique for measuring how hot chili peppers are. At the moment, the chili pepper industry employs lots of poor people to taste and they have a, a scale I'm not quite sure what it's called I think it's probably called the Richter scale or something to measure how hot chili peppers are and um, unfortunately for them we now have this, uh, this little probe which you just stick into the chili pepper and it tells you how hot it is and the same technology 
is being used um, to uh, detect um, illegal drugs in um, saliva samples. And police forces throughout the country are now buying little kits. So when you get pulled over and breathalyzed in future, they will not just test you for alcohol, they will be able to tell if you've been taking cannabis or something else. So watch it. Um, this picture here is the more physical side of chemistry. We're really interested in knowing exactly what's happening in a chemical reaction. And to do that, you have to make the molecules collide in a very um, precise way and look at the, the directions in which the fragments get scattered. And this picture here really is a picture of the sort of velocity map of the fragments coming out of a molecular, uh, of a detailed chemical reaction uh, from which we understand the mechanism of the reaction in a lot of detail. This picture here is a, um, a large uh, inorganic substance, solid substance, in which hydrogen can be stored, and I'll say more about that in a moment. And this final picture, a picture of a robin, doesn't really look very chemical, but I give you this as an example because this is a thesis, a doctoral thesis, which I examined last year. It was a theoretical chemistry thesis, it was a theoretical chemistry thesis about <coughs> how robins align themselves in the Earth's magnetic field. Right? So this is a sort of microcosm of chemistry. It, the maths in it was horrendously complicated and very interesting for someone like me who was a theoretician. And it was applied to the most biological system you could possibly apply it to, which is a robin. Did you know that robins lined up in the Earth's magnetic field? Robins migrate <coughs> in some parts of the world. Some parts of Europe, robins migrate. They migrate in a particular direction, and they orient themselves using the Earth's magnetic field. And the, the, the way in which they do, do that is, is still open to some uh, conjecture, but um, uh, almost certainly involves some kind of free radical reaction in the retina, and the way that free radical reaction reacts to the magnetic field. So very interesting uh, thesis. Chemistry is also going to be central to the future of the British economy. It already is central to the British economy because the pharmaceutical industry is one of our largest industries. And of course, pharmaceutical industry needs lots of good, well-qualified chemists. But a another example is, of course, um, fuel. At the moment, we burn a lot of fossil fuels Fossil fuels produce CO2. CO2, we know, produces the greenhouse effect, and that may possibly produce global warming and all the rest of it, and so we want to reduce the amount of CO2 we produce. Wouldn't it be nice if we could run our cars on hydrogen? And there are a few cars that run on hydrogen, but there are a few problems. You ever tried burning hydrogen in the lab? Burns with a squeaky pop, doesn't it? Those of you who are as old as me will remember the 1920s, <laughs> when they filled airships with hydrogen and they had a couple of very nasty disasters where the airship bumped into something it shouldn't have done and blew up, killed a lot of people. And there was one of those in Britain, the R101 disaster, and another one in Germany. Um, so uh, I don't suppose you'd like very much to um, burn the hydrogen like that in your car engine because it might be quite dangerous. You need safe ways and controlled ways of oxidizing hydrogen and getting the energy out of it. And so uh, the way to do that is to use fuel cells. 
and the energy companies develop some fuel cells and we're developing other ones in the department here. Um, you also don't particularly want to uh, drive your car around with a balloon full of hydrogen on the roof instead of a petrol tank because the first time you run into something you'll get incinerated. And so uh, solid state storage of hydrogen which you can pump the hydrogen into a solid some kind of uh, crystal structure which accepts lots and lots of hydrogen like a sponge and then you can release it in a, in a gentle and controlled way uh, and burn it in an equally gentle and controlled way is very useful. And there's a very large research group in this department devoted basically to finding materials for storage of hydrogen. And as you can see this project won a prize from the Carbon Trust so it must be good. Another area which is going to be the future of computing is molecular electronics. Computers get faster and faster all the time because the chips get smaller and smaller. Well, you don't get smaller than a molecule. So ultimately, we will be able to make computers and computer chips out of single molecules. And there are already things like single molecule diodes and single molecule transistors and single molecule wires, and I showed you one earlier on. And this is just an example of uh, a molecular wire. The wires in your house are insulated so that when you touch them, or when something else touches them, the electricity doesn't leak out. We don't get a short circuit. And your molecular wire will also have to be insulated in the same way. And this picture is a picture of a molecular wire with a, some kind of carbohydrate molecule. It doesn't matter what it is. I think it's a rotaxane <coughs> wrapping around it um, and that acts as an insulator on the wire. And this is the sort of thing which, is, which has been developed in, uh, in this department. And the, uh, molecular electronics is going, really going to be the future of, of computing. The person who makes it work is going to make Bill Gates look like a pauper. Okay, so uh, that's enough about chemistry. Um, hopefully I've sold chemistry to all of you who wanted to do biochemistry and medicine by now. Uh, I'm going to say something about the course. The Oxford Chemistry course is a four-year course. It leads to a master's degree, Master in Chemistry. That is the only course we offer. Right? We don't offer a three-year course leading to a bachelor's degree. We don't offer joint degree courses with other subjects. So you can't take Chemistry and Management, or Chemistry and Maths, or Chemistry and French, or anything else. We only offer a chemistry course. We cater for people who know they want to do chemistry. If you don't know what you want to do, if you're interested in all of science and you aren't really sure you want to be a chemist, then probably the Cambridge Natural Sciences Tripos is better for you because there you do a much wider course to start out with and you can gradually narrow it down and if you really want to be a chemist, become a chemist at the end. In Oxford, we teach chemistry all the way through, right, for people who know they want to do chemistry. Having said that, the course is very broad. It covers a lot of physics, it covers a lot of biology, and it covers a lot of maths. So we do cover a lot of other science, but it's always that aimed at chemistry. It's aimed at understanding molecules. So at the end of this course, you would have done a lot more chemistry than you would almost anywhere else. But you wouldn't perhaps have quite such a wide scientific um, background as you would if you'd done the Cambridge Tripos. There's a difference in uh, 
emphasis. I knew I wanted to be a chemist from the age of 12. I picked up my father's Pelican book of explosives when I was 12. I read it and I said, I want to be a research chemist. I'm a chemist. Sad but true. <coughs> so as I said, chemistry is, a, is the molecular view of nature. The course is very broad. We make all our students take maths. We make all our students take biological chemistry, which includes some biology. We make all our students take some physics, particularly in the first year. But we select the bits of biology and the bits of physics and the bits of maths that they're going to need to understand chemistry, to understand the way molecules work. Although it's a sort of chemistry course, there is some option to specialise in year two. I'll say more about that in a moment. And there's a gigantic choice in year three where you can basically do any branch of chemistry you want to. So in year four. The course structure in Oxford is unlike any other course in Britain. All the other courses I know are modular. They're divided into modules. You take a module exam at the end of the module or at the end of the year. Then you forget everything you knew about that module and go on to the next one. Oxford is not a modular course. Right? We teach chemistry, and you are given general synoptic chemistry exams on everything that you have learned up to this stage at the end of each year. All right? So you don't get module exams. You can't forget anything. You're going to build on it. When I say this to school teachers, they absolutely love it because the modular system destroys the connections in the subject. You never understand how the subject fits, fits together properly. Right? So having a non-modular course, general synoptic exams, means that we force our students to see chemistry as a whole and to understand how the bits of it fit together. So I'll take you through the... Um, the course. Basically, it's going, this bit's going to sound fairly boring. It's a chemistry course, and so there's lots of chemistry in it. In the first year, um, there's lots of chemistry. We run major courses in organic chemistry, in inorganic chemistry, and in physical chemistry, and a major course in maths. The physical chemistry course includes some physics, and the organic chemistry course includes some biology. At the end of the year, you take four exams. One in each of these areas, organic, inorganic, physical, and maths. And you have to pass them all. You are not allowed to start the second year unless you have passed all the first year examinations. For those who are unfortunate enough to um, uh, fail one or two, um, they, uh, there is an opportunity to resit them in September. The first year examination resits are next week. And I shall be examining them, examining them on Monday, Tuesday, and deciding the lists on Wednesday. Okay, so those exams are hurdles. They don't count towards the final de degree class, but you must pass them in order to qualify to get into the second year. In the second year, we build on the foundations of the first year. That's why you have to pass it, yeah? because we're going to assume that you know all that <coughs> stuff and we're going to use it in the second year courses. And the second year courses you'll have core material in each of the three main areas of chemistry and at the end of the year you'll get three general examinations one in each of the three main areas of chemistry and it will cover everything in the second year and will also assume that you know everything in the first year 
And these second-year exams, at the moment, count 25% towards the final degree. Now, there is an option in the second year to do something extra. Um, you can take what we call some supplementary subjects in the second year, and some of these supplementary subjects allow you to take parts of chemistry deeper than second years would normally do so. So, for example, there's a supplementary subject in pharmaceutical chemistry, um, which allows you to, to, if you're interested in that area, to look deeper into that area. It contains quite a lot of chemistry of drugs and some pharmacology. There's also a supplementary subject in quantum chemistry, if you like, the more mathematical side of things. But there is also the option to do biological chemistry. Sorry, that's a lie. Scrub that one. Uh, there's an option to do chemical pharmacology. There's an option to do um, history and philosophy of science. There's an option to do a language course. <coughs> All right, these are extras. Lots of students opt to do this, but you don't have to. About two-thirds of our students opt to do one of these supplementary subjects, but the other third uh, opt not to. Um, they don't count. If you get a distinction in them, you get a small bonus on your final mark at the end, but they're really there for um, interest. In the third year, there's some more core material, but we start giving students more options. We, at the moment, teach six option papers, and the students choose three of them. And they cover all sorts of things. Um, there's an option to look at, into things like laser spectroscopy in more detail, if you're interested in that sort of area. There's an option to do biological chemistry in more de detail, if you're interested in that area. And there are options in uh, sort of synthetic organic chemistry and in instrumental methods and all sorts of other things. At the end of the third year, you get three exams, and again, these are general synoptic exams, and these will examine all the chemistry, all the core chemistry that you've done all the way through the course. And um, you also get an exam in each of the three options that you've selected, and these exams are really important. They count for 50% of your degree. All right, the fourth year, there are no courses, there are no exams. So everybody celebrates. There's a firework to show the celebration. Um, the fourth year is a research year. You join a research group and you do research for the entire year. It's a longer year than the other years. It's 38 weeks instead of 24. You do a project which you have selected. There's no coursework. There's no exams. And at the end of the year, you write a thesis on your project and you have an oral examination on it. And that's worth a quarter of the degree. And that's really exciting, right? It's, this is real research. You are really part of a world-leading research group in one of the premier chemistry departments in the world. And you're really doing research. There's nothing like it. There's absolutely nothing like <laughs> banging your head against a brick wall for months and months and months and then being the first person ever to understand something, prove something, make something, it's, it really is a buzz. And, and lots publish of something. Sorry? And publish. And publish something, absolutely, yes. Lots and lots of students um, really find this uh, uh, very motivating. And uh, uh, I'm going to tell you a story at this point. I had a student um, who uh, came to me at the start of his part two year. 
And he said, this is a waste of time. Why can't I graduate? I want to be an accountant. Why should I have to do research projects? And, well, he was persuaded, of course, by the fact that he wasn't going to get a degree if he left <laughs> after three years, was one bit of persuasion, but um, he was persuaded to do a research project. He did quite a good research project, and he was completely motivated by that. And he decided that he wasn't going to be an accountant, and he went on and he did a doctorate, and then he went and got a job on the faculty in an American university, and he had just come back to become a professor at Manchester, and we give them 30 million pounds to spend to build a new um, uh, institute in the area of research which I do, which is radiation chemistry. So that is uh, a story of how the part two project can really change somebody's life. Um, and he's much happier than if he'd been an accountant. <laughs> he's also much poorer. <laughs> We teach in all the ways that most universities teach. We have departmental lectures. The lectures are given to the whole year, just the same as in every other department. We have practical labs. Again, we have practical labs in each of the three main areas of chemistry, just the same as in other departments. We run classes, just the same as in other departments, to go through problems. The one area in which Oxford teaching is unique is that we have tutorials. And in a tutorial, you'll be set a major piece of work every week by your tutors. And I can tell you this is a substantial piece of work, and it's at least three times longer than anything I would have dared set in London. You have to do that because you're going to have an hour or an hour and a half with one other student and your tutor going through all the bits of this work which you didn't understand. Right? Now, if you're in a class of 10, you can sit in the back row and hope that the teacher doesn't um, catch your eye. If you're in a group of two, you can't do that. Okay, so we are looking um, for students who are going to be able to use this system, because it's obviously a very expensive way of teaching. It's a very good way of teaching, um, because it means that we can tailor the teaching to the student. Right? I will typically give four tutorials in a row in an afternoon. Right? That's a lot of work. Every tutorial will be different. They're all on the same subject, but they'll all be different because the students have need different things. They have failed to understand different things. Different students can be stretched in different directions to different extents. Right? So each tutorial is a sort of personal thing where the tutor tries to stretch the student as far as they can go on that particular topic. And I don't think any other university can do that. Uh, and even in Cambridge, you get supervisions. The supervisions are generally with graduate students, not with faculty members. Right? Your tutorials will generally be with a member of the faculty in a group of two or sometimes a group of three. Right? Really small group. Right? In London, the smallest group I could teach was about 10. So this is how the students' week hands out. You basically get uh, two or three lectures a day, usually two. One of them will always be at nine o'clock. For some reason, students find nine o'clock challenging. <laughs> but our students manage to get up largely for nine o'clock. They go to nine o'clock lectures. There isn't really much excuse. They all 
live in their colleges within walking distance. I mean, it's not as if they were commuting in from the, from the, the far reaches of London, which uh, the, some students have to do. <coughs> They're all living in Oxford, and they all um, get, they can all get in for 9 o'clock. So normally they'll be 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock. Sometimes they'll also be an 11 o'clock lecture. You'll get one or two tutorials with a major piece of work. I've already talked about that. Usually two afternoons of lab. The afternoon starts when the lectures finish. So that will normally be 11 o'clock. I know it's not formally afternoon. The labs are open basically as soon as the lectures are finished. And you'll usually get a class in addition with a slightly larger group um, to go through a set of problems. In the first year, for example, you get a maths class every week. Now, that is quite a lot of work. You have to spend a lot of time preparing your tutorial work, but there is time for other activities. If you're really serious about another activity, you can do it. Right? We have students who go off and win gold medals in the Olympics and things like that, but they have to be quite single-minded about it. Right? They have to put enough time aside to do their work and organize their time well enough so that they can do something else serious. Most students aren't that serious. Most students want to do two or three other things, but not at that sort of level. Um, you know, they might want to go and sing in a choir or play in an orchestra or learn chord ball or do ballroom dancing seems to be popular these days. So all of these things are available, and there's plenty of time to do them. But the terms are short, they're very intensive, and you must leave time to do your tutorial work and the other work that you need to do because there's absolutely no point turning up to tutorial not having done it. It's a total waste of the tutor's time if all he has to do is go through what's in the textbook. That's not what the tutorial is there for. Right? We assume you can read that for yourself. <coughs> okay, so I've already said how Oxford is different, but we'll just go through that again. First, I think the level of academic challenge is higher than in most other universities. The amount of work we set and the level of the work is different. The uh, tutorial system is pretty much unique. One member of staff and two or three students. The part two research year is pretty much unique. All other universities that offer chemistry masters have a major project in the final year, but they will normally run classes alongside it. And so typically half the final year will be a project, and half the final year will be lectures and exams. In Oxford, there are no lectures and exams, it's just research. Right? So that is a major difference. It's a real research project. I don't want to say it's not a real research project in other universities, but it, obviously if you've got a whole year and 38 weeks to work on it, you can really get to grips with something. The exam system is different. It's not modular. All the exams are synoptic. In London, we used to have a general paper, <coughs> but we had to stop it because the students all failed it. In Oxford, all the exams are general papers. All right, having said that, it's not the end of the world if you don't get into Oxford. There are very good chemistry courses in other universities. If you get a good degree in another university, then you are a good chemist. And the chemistry you know is the same as the chemistry that everybody else in the world knows. Right? Chemistry is the same subject everywhere, not just in Britain, but everywhere in the world. Right? You go to your first conference and you meet somebody from India and somebody from China and somebody from um, Russia, and you all speak the same language. 
and I don't mean broken English, I mean chemistry. Yeah. You, all, you can all talk to each other because chemistry is the same subject everywhere. It's the same science. That's the beautiful thing about science. All right, I've said how the degree currently works. I do need to say that we are planning some changes. We hope that the changes will come in with the cohort that starts in 2009, which will be you. So I need, feel I need to say something about the changes we're planning. Um, they haven't all been approved yet. Um, but before I do that, I'll tell you a joke. Um, how many academics does it take to screw in a light bulb? So how many academics does it take to change a light bulb? Change? Well, changing things in Oxford is difficult, and we've been trying to change the degree for some years, but we are finally going to do it. One change is going to be that the second year exams will be downgraded to count only 15%, and that the practical marks, which don't currently count towards the final degree, will start counting, and the practicals will count 10%. That has been agreed, and that will happen. Instead of taking three option papers out of six, we're only going to have one option paper which covers everything. What this is going to do is it's going to mean that third-year students will get a wider choice of topics, but they'll have more choice about the ones they do. At the moment, basically, they have to do half the optional material that we offer. But this will actually make the optional material more optional and will allow you to, to hone in more in the third year in these options on the things you really want to do. And the final thing will be that the general papers in the third year will be a little bit more comprehensive as a result of that. You won't be able to um, cherry-pick particular <coughs> topics that you want to do because you won't really know what's going to come up. So those are the planned changes. I won't say any more about those, but obviously um, for those of you who have given offers during the course of the year, we'll keep you up to date with anything, any agreed changes to the course as they get agreed. All right, admissions. These are the statistics from 2007. They're fairly typical. Uh, so this is the cohort which is just about to start this October and that we interviewed in 2007. Right, we had about 480 applications and we gave 205 offers. That's a success rate of 43%. There isn't any meaningful bias against males or females. Um, there is a small meaningful bias. Schools, independent schools are slightly more successful than um, state schools. Um, I think the reason for this is that independent schools screen their candidates more, and there are a few candidates from state schools who apply who really shouldn't have done. But that's um, the reason I'll show you the more, more detailed statistics in a moment about that. So it's not impossible to get in, right? 43% is a pretty good success rate. It's better than in many subjects in Oxford. The number of applications has been going up year on year. Um, and so uh, uh, I don't know what it's going to be for 2009 because, of course, you haven't applied yet. Um, but there's a, there's a slow upward trend in the number of applications. The number of offers is pretty much fixed, which means the success rate is declining slowly. 
What we want is students who are gifted, who understand chemistry, and this doesn't mean students who've learned everything by rote, it means students who can think about chemistry, students <coughs> who are going to benefit from being in a tutorial system, who we're going to be able to stretch in a tutorial, who are going to be able to work things out for themselves, who are going to be able to pick up on hints. Pretty much all the students who apply to us are predicted to get three A's at A-level or equivalent. That makes it quite difficult to select on the basis of things like UCAS form, because of, if everybody's predicted the top grades, they all look the same. In chemistry, we don't have an entrance exam. Some other subjects in Oxford now do. Um, physics and maths have reinstituted an entrance exam because they found it, find it impossible to uh, sort out which candidates um, they need to interview on the basis of the UCAS form. We don't do that in chemistry. We try to interview everybody who applies. Now, we don't interview quite everybody who applies. Some overseas students obviously can't be interviewed. And there are a few students who, when you look at the UCAS form, um, who really are not predicted to get high grades, um, and then we won't interview them. But nearly all, in, nearly all people who apply will interview. Right? So perhaps 20 students or something won't get interviewed. So we do the selection on the basis of the UCAS form and on the basis of an interview. And I'm going to say more about the interview later on. For those that get offers, we will always offer three A's at A-level. Right? It doesn't matter if you're doing four or five or seven A-levels. Um, some schools can't offer four A-levels, and we don't want to discriminate against those schools. We will only give you an offer on the basis of three A-levels, and it will always be three A's. And we will be completely inflexible on that. Right? So if you drop to a B in one of the subjects we want you to get an A in, then we won't accept you. That's quite different from many other universities. Uh, we were much more flexible than that in London. Um, but it's really not fair. All the students who are, who are, who are uh, applying, or most of the students who are applying, are going to get three A's. And if we start accepting people who don't get three A's, then it's really not fair on the people we've turned down. We require chemistry at A-level. That's perhaps not a surprise. We have a very, very strong preference for maths. Now, we do always accept a few students without maths, but it's a small number. It's a very small number, right? And the, the cohort that are about to start in this October, there are 190 students who are going to start, and two of them don't have maths. Right, so students who don't have maths have to be able to persuade us that they're going to be able to cope with the maths in the course. And, the math, uh, and those that can persuade us that, we will give them lots of extra maths help and extra tuition and the rest of it. And they often do very well in the end. But um, not very many people get in without maths. But it's not impossible. So if you don't like maths or you can't do maths, then that's not good. Right? But if you're not doing maths because your school said don't do maths, or your school says we're not going to offer maths or something like that, then that's a completely different story. Or if you suddenly realised you wanted to do chemistry later on and you hadn't done maths, then you might be able to persuade us. Right? The ideal combination is chemistry, maths, physics. Physics is not um, <coughs> vital. 
Lots of our students don't have physics. We don't assume that our students have physics, but you'll find some bits of the first year a lot easier if you do. Similarly, biology. You'll find some of the biological chemistry parts of the first year much easier if you've done biology. Non-science subjects are welcome. We're perfectly happy to accept people with chemistry, maths, and French, for example. We have a few people that like that every year. Um, you don't have to have three sciences, and we'll look at you with two. We really would like one of them to be maths. If you're not doing maths AS, then that's a total disaster. I don't think we've let anybody in without maths AS in the last five years, and I've searched through all the records to look for it. So, um, okay. Some of you will be doing international baccalaureate. The typical offer will be 40 or 39 points. That includes bonus points. Those of you who are not doing IBACs won't have a clue what I'm talking about. Um, we will probably ask for a seven at the, in chemistry at the higher level, and we also really would like to see maths at the higher level, and we will probably ask for a six or a seven in the maths. There's currently a bit of an internal battle going on in the university about whether we should ask for a six or a seven in that second subject, and I hope that the six will win. Other qualifications we do know about, we evaluate them individually. Cambridge is starting a new exam called the Pre-U. We haven't seen it yet, so we don't have a policy on it yet, but it looks on paper as if it could be quite useful. Um, the government's new diplomas, well, there isn't one in chemistry yet, fortunately, so we don't have to worry about that. Um, but no doubt there will be at some point, and then we'll have to decide whether there's <coughs> enough chemistry and enough science in it. For, uh, to, to meet our requirements. Right. So interviews in chemistry are obviously important. And it's really not a very nice experience because it's an academic interview. Right? Some universities, the interview is really there to try and persuade you to go there. In Oxford, the interview is really there to um, test how well you understand the chemistry and how you're going to be able to use the system. The most important thing is know the syllabus. We don't expect you to know lots of things outside the A-level syllabus, but we do expect you to know the things that you've learned at school. And we don't just expect you to know them, we expect you to understand them. All right, so you might find it useful to look at A-level textbooks from other syllabuses as well. Because different syllabuses put different... Um, slants on things, they teach things in different ways, they use different words. The more different ways you see something explained, the better you're going to understand it. So one quite good way, thing to do is to read the textbooks from other syllabuses as well. You're going to have to explain chemical things. You're going to have to work out chemical things in your interview. Practice. Practice explaining chemical things. Explain how carbon dioxide leads to global warming to your mother at the breakfast table. You'll probably murder me for saying that. But the more practice you get, the better. I'm going to tell you another story. A couple of years ago, I was invited to um, a famous public school. Um, they run a chemistry club where they get their students to produce posters and give talks on chemical topics. I won't say which school it was. And they have an all-day event, and they invite people down from universities to come and help uh, give talks about uh, interesting areas. I gave a talk about how much polonium it takes to poison somebody. 
and that sort of thing. Um, the this is very good, right? These kids know how to explain things. They know how to talk about chemistry. They have this sort of science discussion club that they go to every week. Last, uh, the year before last, um, I told this story uh, in this uh, in this um, <coughs> talk, and there was a school teacher there from uh, a large state school in uh, Yorkshire, and uh, she uh, went away to her school and she started a science discussion club, and she'd never got anybody into Oxford before that, and last year she got three people in. And so it hurt. It helps. So talk about science. Practice talking about science. Practice working things out. And if they don't set something up at the school, set up a science club at school yourself. Right. Finally, read your application. We're always going to want to start the interview on something where you're really comfortable. You will have written a personal statement which says something interesting like, I'm really interested in composing... 17th century style polyphonic music in my spare time or something. Well, if you've written something like that in your personal statement, make sure it's true and make sure that you are prepared to talk about it because you might very well be confronted with somebody in your interview who really does write 17th century polyphonic church music or at least knows the rules of counterpoint, like me. Okay, so... Um, Read your application and know what's in it, because you, the, the interview will probably start by picking up some point out of the application. And if you really have forgotten what you've written, or even worse, if it's not true, uh, then um, that could be embarrassing for you. Um, don't panic. They're going to take some piece of chemistry which you know about, and they're going to try to stretch it in all sorts of strange directions and make you apply it to things that you don't know about at all. So you might, you know, start being asked about what happens when water boils or when um, ice melts or something like that and then go on to how the melting point of ice might depend on the pressure and then go on to um, discussing whether or not ice melts when you ski and whether you could do the same with methane if you were sitting on Titan or something like that. So the interview might take you in all sorts of weird and strange directions. And, of course, when you read the horror stories in the newspapers about how weird Oxford interviews are, they just take the last bit without the context of it. They take the weird question at the end rather than anything else. Right? But the interview is there to test how well you can apply the things you know, how well you can be stretched, how well you can pick up on hints. I don't expect you to be able to do it all yourself, but we'll give you hints and we'll hope that you'll pick up on them. Right? Almost by definition, at some point in the interview, you're going to break. Right? So lots of people come out of their Oxford interviews thinking this is an absolute disaster. And it's not. Right? Because everybody does. Right? It happens to everybody. Everybody breaks. If you break at the first question, and that's slightly more worrying, <laughs> that's the stuff we expected you to know about in the first question. Right? But, 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 but um, every... Uh, <coughs> It, I mean, it, it really can be quite um, deflating to, uh, to, to, to get to this situation. But remember, we are going to let 40% of you in at the end of it, and this is happening to everybody in their interviews, right? So it's not the end of the world. And um, lots of people come out of their interviews and they think, I don't have a hope of getting in. And then they get in. 
So um, don't worry about it. Don't panic if you can't answer something. You know, we'll try and lead you. Don't bluff. Right? One really big mistake is to go into an interview saying, I'm really interested in this really terribly obscure and complicated area of chemistry because the chances are that somebody in there will know about it. And if you don't, then you're going to come unstuck. And I remember an interview which I gave some years ago now um, <coughs> to a candidate and um, I said, well, what would you like to be asked about? And he said, you know, I'm really interested in laser Raman spectroscopy. I suspect none of you have any idea what laser Raman spectroscopy is about, nor did he. <laughs> Unfortunately, I give a 30 tutorial on it. And my colleague, who was also in, in the interview, uses it as a research tool. Um, he didn't know what Raman spectroscopy was. He didn't know why it was different from other kinds of spectroscopy. Briefly, it's because the photons scatter off a molecule and leave energy behind rather than being absorbed by the molecule. Um, and he didn't know um, how lasers worked, and so it was just a complete nutty disaster. Right? So we decided to ask him about something else. Right, so that's not a good trick to play. Um, so don't bluff, don't lie, particularly don't lie on your personal statement. I know medical students are famous for making things up on their personal statements. Uh, personal statements in chemistry are not that important, but we are quite likely to pick something up on it to talk to you about in the interview, so make sure you can. Okay, at the end of this, the day, the students who come into the first year will all have chemistry grade A, <coughs> at A level or equivalent. Nearly all of them will have maths. About two-thirds of them will have physics, but about a third of them won't. And about a third of them will have biology, and about two-thirds of them won't. So that gives you some sort of um, overview of what the first year looks like. Half the students will come from the state sector. Under half of them, about 40% of them will come from the independent sector. <clears throat> the other 10% will come from overseas or be homeschooled or something else. No, not that I'm implying that overseas students are weird. <laughs> One question that lots of people ask is which college should I apply to? Unfortunately, being director of studies and not being formally attached to, to any college, I can give you completely unbiased advice about this. Um, there are 30 undergraduate colleges, 28 of them accept chemists. So the first thing is, don't apply to one of the ones that doesn't. <laughs> okay, the two that don't are Mansfield and Harris Manchester. All the other colleges accept chemistry students. Don't choose a college from an academic point of view. Most of the course is identical. The only part of the course which is not identical are the tutorials, and the tutorials are different for every student anyway. Okay, so um, we try to make sure that, um, that, that every college teaches the same, to the same syllabus. Uh, you cover basically the same material in the tutorials, whichever college you're at, uh, but every tutorial will be personally aimed at you. Tutorials will generally be with uh, your tutor in your college, or if your college only has one tutor or two tutors, you may be um, have a an exchange relationship with another college, so you get teaching in more than one college. <coughs> All the lectures and practicals are in the department. 
So, so don't use chemistry, don't use academics to choose a college. Choose a college for completely other reasons. Go and look around them, decide which one you're going to be happy in. They're all different. Some of them are very small, with small numbers of students. That means everybody knows everybody else, it's very friendly. It also means if you do something stupid, everybody knows about it. Some of the colleges are much larger. If you have interesting and strange interests, you will, in a larger college, you almost certainly find other people who have similar interests. But the larger college is not impersonal. You will always have a, a group of friends. They won't all be doing chemistry. You'll have a group of friends doing all sorts of different subjects. Um, I was an undergraduate at Jesus, which is a small college, and I was a fellow and taught at Maudlin, which is a large college, and I was junior dean there as well. So. You can't hide, you can't drop out, S somebody will s spot it. You'll always have good, um, good backup, personal backup and academic backup, whichever college you end up in. Some colleges are medieval. They all have central heating now, unlike when I was a student. Some colleges were built in the 20th century, right? You might like to live in a modern building with all mod cons, you might like to live in a room that was built before Christopher Columbus discovered America. You know, different people like different things. Some colleges have very good musical traditions. If you like music, you might want to go to one of those colleges. Some colleges have very good sporting traditions. If you like rowing or you like playing rugby or something like that, then you might want to go to one of those colleges. So find out that sort of thing. Feel the atmosphere of the college, go and visit, talk to some students, and, uh, and choose your college that way. Finally, I apologise for this picture. This is not a picture of an Oxford graduate. <laughs> um, graduate destinations don't usually include prison. Oxford graduates in chemistry can do all sorts of different things. Lots of people <coughs> do chemistry because they're inter interested in forensics. That's why I put that picture up. Chemistry is a really good degree to do if you're interested in forensics because the people who employ forensic scientists want to see a degree in a really good solid science subject like chemistry. And I know this because I talk to the people at LGC Forensics <coughs> about once a week at the moment. And they really like people with good chemistry degrees. Half our students go on and do research. They study for a doctorate. And then they go, uh, go on. There is a chemical industry in Britain. Unlike physics, there isn't really a physics industry. There are lots of places physicists go, but there is a chemical industry. Chemical industry needs chemistry graduates. Pharmaceuticals is one of the most important industries in the UK. Petrochemicals and fine chemicals. This department more than any other department I've ever seen in any other university in this country or in the United States produces spin-out companies. Lots of our staff take their ideas and actually do something commercial with them. <coughs> this department has made something like £80 million for the university from its spin-out companies. This department built this building, £60-something million pounds worth, being lent the money by a venture capital company on the basis of a share of the profits of spin-out companies. 
and they've made their money already, and there's still another five years of the contract to run. Right, so this department produces spin-out companies that make a lot of money. They do things like synthesis of molecules for the pharmaceutical industry. They do things like sensors for Ill illegal drugs um, uh, by analysing your saliva. They do um, one of the first spin-out companies uh, was uh, a spin-out company that <coughs> produced a computer program for the computer design of drugs for the pharmaceutical industry, which is a standard part now of every pharmaceutical company. <coughs> right, so, and I don't know what it is about this department that does it, but somehow it does, and I've never seen anything like it anywhere else. It's quite extraordinary. And it means that some of the people who lecture in this department have made many tens of millions of pounds themselves. And they still lecture because they love it. Right? We really love chemistry. That's why we do it. Okay. Um, analytical and environmental. There's an anal analytical chemistry is very is needed all over industry. Uh, obviously, the environment is a big problem at the moment and they need atmospheric chemists and things like that. Forensics, I've mentioned. Some of our graduates go into consultancy. Some of them go into teaching. We really need good, well-qualified science teachers in this country. We need more and more of them. <coughs> there aren't enough of them, and, and some of our better graduates now, fortunately, are going into teaching. There was a time when the chemistry school at Oxford was the largest source of accountants in the country, I'm happy to say that's not true anymore, but and the skills you learn in chemistry are useful, generally useful, in um, the financial services industry, if there are any jobs left in it after this week. Um, and, um, and chemistry graduates are highly prized by um, a lot of the, um, the major companies there. Our graduates do all sorts of things. One of the, my friends who was a chemist when I was uh, an undergraduate is now a fairly famous film director. Went to work for the BBC. One of our graduates became prime minister. We don't talk about her. <laughs> so chemistry graduates, chemistry is a door opening subject. You, you can do lots and lots of things, go in lots of directions with a chemistry degree and uh, it's really worthwhile doing. And you'll get a really good degree if you come here. If you've got any other questions, this is my email address. You can write it down, you can send me questions by email. I'll also be downstairs in the reception room downstairs and I'll be happy to answer any other questions then. And if you've got any questions now, if you dare ask them in front of everybody else, then please do. Thank you very much.